This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. Let's go to the moon. This is a great and lofty goal, but it doesn't mean much if you or I say it. Why? Because just guessing, you and I, we don't have an actual plan for how to do that or the means for that matter. Point is, you need an actual plan with real numbers and defined goals and set timeframes in order to achieve your goals. My guest this week, the Chief Marketing Officer of GTM Hub, Jeremy Epstein, gets this and is passionate about the usefulness and importance of OKRs in the marketing department to help teams build plans to get them to where they wanna go. Google's usually is held up as the poster boy for OKRs because in the Bible of the OKR industry is what's called Measure What Matters. And John Doerr, D-O-E-R-R, if anyone wants to go after the book, he introduced OKRs to Google's. And OKRs has this deep history going all the way back to Andy Grove at Intel, even sort of based foundationally on Peter Drucker's stuff. So if you're a real student of that, you'll really appreciate it. So, OKRs to me, like, yes, I have skin in the game and I'm talking my own book here, so feel free to discount it. But like by my calculation, OKRs will be embedded in every successful organization in some form or format by the end of this decade, or else those companies may not even be around. They are that game-changing capability-wise from a strategy execution perspective. And changing up the game is exactly what Epstein is best at. In this show, We'll get into some of the lessons Epstein learned during his time at Microsoft and Sprinkler, discuss some of the best practices for managing a remote workforce, and unpack some key principles of great leadership in marketing. And don't worry, if you love this episode as much as I did, I've already invited Jeremy back on the show. This guy's exceptional. I can't wait for you to enjoy this episode about the simplified and data-driven marketing methods of a marketing leader like Jeremy Epstein. Your content is at the heart of what you do. It connects your company to others, teaches them, guides them, and inspires them. But creating, managing, and editing content at scale is often very chaotic and difficult. Empower your content teams with Brightspot Content Management System, made specifically for marketers and corporate communications leaders. No more waiting for a developer to have to piece things together. Put the power to create and deliver powerful yet complex digital experiences into the hands of your marketers with a comprehensive suite of ready-to-use tools and functionality. Bring a bright spot to your tech stack, your customers, your team with the Brightspot content management system. 
Visit brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to learn more. Hey, everybody, welcome to Marketing Trends. This is your host, Jeremy Bergeron, Vice President of Media Strategy at mission.org. And today we have a baller in our house, folks. We've got Jeremy Epstein, aka Yuri Epstein, which we'll get into, Chief Marketing Officer at GTM Hub. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I love you because your name's Jeremy, but I gotta ding you because Epstein is the pedophile. Oh, it's Epstein. That guy single-handedly crushed my SEO like overnight. It was a nightmare. Dude, I appreciate you saying that because I was gonna ask if you ever crossed that. So it's Epstein. Let's do it again. It's Epstein. Dang it. No, no, no. Let it go. Just roll with it. Okay. People will then everybody will know that they shouldn't butcher the last name because that guy screwed us. Okay. All of us named Epstein. Yeah. True story. True story. Well. I want to start at the beginning, some of the background I saw and some of the things that you care about, specifically the thing about how you live your life with this intention and inspired by a lot of amazing folks that also kind of move me. And I appreciate how you as a CMO care about cultivating gratitude and compassion and humility. So I want to get into all that too. But let's start at the beginning. What's the genesis for Jeremy in terms of marketing? Like what's what was the brand or the campaign, or maybe it was a book or a leader? Where did it start for you? Because clearly you've been on a path and I want to know where the beginning of that path was. That's good because most, my wife doesn't know what the path looks like. So maybe you can explain it to her because she's just very confused. And my kids have no idea what I do. So that's fine. Um, yeah, you nailed it, man. It actually, it was a book and an inspirational boss. I when I graduated from college, I actually lived in Germany for a year. And then I lived in Japan for two years. And that was like, believe it or not, like the early days of the commercial internet. And I was like, really started. I've always been sort of a technophile. I was starting to play around with the internet. And I was like, I knew something was big, but I was too young, dumb and naive to figure out like what to do with it until I went to a presentation in Japan by a Canadian guy who had started what we would now call internet marketing company. And his presentation, I was like, oh my God, this guy is like doing everything I've been thinking about. So I went up, I asked him for a summer internship, which ultimately led to a full-time job. And he hired me and he said, how many marketing books have you read? And I was like, uh, none. And he goes, read this one. And he gave me Don Peppers and Martha Rogers book called The One-to-One Future. And I devoured it in Tokyo in like 1996. And I was like, I don't really fully understand this, but if this is the one-to-one -one future, this is my calling. This is what I want to do. And I've been going after it ever since. It was just awesome. Wow. So I'm curious about the experience of entering into the marketing world as a tactical, you know, I'm sure you didn't start off as a marketing leader, but you started off learning marketing and being involved in some of the execution of things. And now certainly as CMO at GTM Hub, you've been in leadership roles and stuff and you are in one now. What was that like for you from kind of going from, all right, I'm honing my marketing chops to, hey, now I'm starting to lead teams and think at a different level. What is that intersection like for you? You did a really nice job of encapsulating the challenge and making that shift from execution to leader. And honestly, I struggled with it at the beginning because the first time around, especially in my previous role at Sprinkler, I, I had a really hard time resisting the urge to just jump in and be like, oh, I can do this better myself and faster, which I think is what leaders have to learn how to do is resist that urge. Like, sure, you can do it better faster. You've been doing it for 15 years or whatever. But the point of being a leader is to create a culture, first and foremost, where people feel empowered and feel safe to go out and make mistakes. 
And part of that is learning on the job, especially in the knowledge economy that we live in. And so it's taken me a long time. And I honestly got some really, really hard, candid feedback uh, along the way from that my style for a lot of people was not working. It was too micromanager. It was too much, you know, overbearing and people didn't like it. And I realized, okay, wait a second. If I'm going to actually create a high performing team, as opposed to just being a high performing individual, you know, that best player doesn't always become your best coach. I needed to make that shift from player to coach. And I had to think about the game, if you will, in a very different light. And it's still a learning journey. And fortunately, um, I've had some great teachers along the way and I've spent a lot of time and I've tried to create an environment where my team feels safe and comfortable to tell me like what a total screw up I am on a regular basis. I think sometimes they go to extremes with that, but Hey, you know, it's, it's, it's like, all right, I got it guys. I'm a total screw up. It's like enough already. Yeah, exactly. Thanks. It's interesting to talk about creating, you know, this kind of safe container for a team, but for a marketing team where, it's a, obviously a, a major core function of the business, and there's not a ton of wiggle room to get it right. The marketing leader role in an organization can be the shortest tenured role. You come in for a, a rebrand or a reorg, and maybe you retire the good way or, or maybe not, right? So how do you create that container when you kind of, you still got to get it right, and yet you still have to have a place where folks can be fully themselves and test and try and kind of be okay bringing their full self to the marketing team? How do you go about creating that? It's really interesting because I worked at Microsoft for six years and obviously Microsoft does a lot of tremendously phenomenal things. But I walked away from that experience realizing that in large corporations, typically, if you go out and you take a big risk, odds are, and you don't make it, like you're going to either get demoted or fired or transferred. And that's not the way to get creativity. The sales function, and I love the chief revenue officer, he's one of my best friends, what have you, like there's just a lot of blocking and tackling. You know how to run B2B sales. When you're doing marketing, especially in an environment you know where Facebook pushes new live code every 11 seconds and it's changing that quickly, you have to, yes, do the blocking and tackling on some basic core tenants, but you need creativity. You will fail if you just do me too, like everybody. I mean, think about marketing. Marketing is all about differentiation, right? Like that's the core, the single best book I've ever read on marketing is called Different by Young Me Moon. And so it's about being different and that's creating art and that's where you have to feel safe. So, you know, my CEO at GTM Hub said it to me the best when I came into the role, he says, infinite patience. You just have to have infinite patience with people. And yes, are there times where it's just realize it's not working? Yes. But for the most part, you know, like we say, it's about 1% better every day. If you get 1% better every day, by the end of the year, you're going to be 97x better. So just... Focus on that 1%. Did you learn something today? What did you learn today? What did you try today, even though it worked? And what did you learn from it? And if you create that recursive loop, you might have a lot of failures, but then one day you're going to have that big one and it'll be totally worth it. And combine that with infinite patience. So that's what I'm trying to do. We'll see. What are some of the things you learned from your time at Sprinkler and then also at Microsoft? I'm curious to be some kind of the takeaways from those experiences that you brought to GTM Hub. Yeah. So Microsoft, I think it's, that's really where I learned how to do marketing at scale. <laughs> it's hard to get bigger than those guys. And really the operational excellence, the discipline, the measurements. And up until then, I sort of just learning the basics of marketing. But when you take it to a Microsoft scale, like you're really thinking at a different level of abstraction. And also, obviously, you're working across multiple functions and alignment. There's so many resources, which is great, but they can all be pulled in multiple directions. So I think that was 
part of it. And I think, you know, it's Sprinkler. I mean, my CEO at Sprinkler is just was world-class. I, I love him. He's, he's just such an inspiration for me. He had so many praises, but one of them was what he called win on paper. He says, you know, you don't have to spend weeks in a planning process, but you need to think what he called from the future back. What's that desired result? What's the desired outcome? And what's a reasonable win on paper plan to get there? It might not work. But if you've done that win on paper and then somebody else can come in and you can say, yeah, you know what? If you go out every morning and you run for two miles and you cut your calories, yes, you will lose weight. This goal by the end of the year. OK, that's a win on paper plan, you know, thinking future back. So I think those combinations were helpful. And also, you know, in Sprinkler, when I joined, there were 30 people. I was the marketing department. By the time I left, there were 1,400 people and my organization was like 65 people. So understanding what it's like to go through hyper growth has been incredibly valuable because now, as we're basically playing that same movie at GTM Hub, which is experiencing maybe even faster growth, it's like, okay, I've recognized this situation. I'm not going to panic about everything because I've already panicked about it in a previous life. I'll let other people panic about it this time. And I'll be like, all right, we'll get there. It'll be all right. In this modern day marketing age now, like what's your approach to building a high performance team? Just use GTM Hub, for example. Like what's some of the things you want to make sure you have? One area where I know I need to get better is recruiting. And not so much recruiting people into the story because it's a pretty compelling story. But in that interviewing process, how do you really separate, you know, the diamonds from the coal? Because as we were bantering about before, you know, having those players who make other players better. It's just invaluable. And so thinking about it the way like a Phil Jackson, sorry to use the sports analogy, you know, for the non-sports fans, but how a great coach would, how am I going to put the pieces together so that they all complement each other? Really what the role of the chief marketing officer is, is like the conductor of the orchestra. I need to kind of make sure everybody's literally on the same page, that the sound, the music has been written, that everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And then the violins do this, the winds do that, the percussion does that, blah, blah, blah. And they all do it. And they all know what other people are supposed to do. And they go X. And is there room for each person to sort of go within the range? Sure. But that's sort of my job. So I think separating out the wheat from the chaff is definitely one. And then the second thing is I'm going to, you're going to hear me talk about culture probably a thousand times. It's just really helping people feel safe. And the one thing, if you go to people on my team and you ask them, what's the one thing that Jeremy or Yuri, as they call me, always says is, I will say, I don't care when you do the work and I don't care where you do the work. I just care that the work gets done and you achieve your outcomes. So on that note, I know there was something that we learned about you, which is you're thinking around hybrid workforces. And I want to kind of get into that because this is, I think, a great segue for that is hybrid workforces are set up for failure. How so? Can you unpack that for us and our audience? It depends. They could be set up for failure. And I think a lot of it comes back to sort of, you know, the one part I probably didn't say with the high performing team is providing clarity. Here are the outcomes. Here's the strategy. Here's the organizational structure, like who reports to who, which teams. Once I do that, then I get out of the way. But that's where we're, we're in this miss of this massive shift from a focus on output, which is what the industrial economy was all about, how many widgets, how many cars, whatever, to a focus on outcomes as a knowledge economy. I don't care if you spend 10 minutes on a project or six hours on a project. I just care what happens. And frankly, if you can do it in 10 minutes and then you can go spend the rest of the time in a cafe, 
fantastic. You delivered the value, right? So it's really about providing the clarity and then helping people see, hey, if I do this X and then that will help person achieve Y or who can help me achieve this because where are those opportunities for collaboration, synergy, alignment, pick your word of the day. So it's creating that infrastructure whether you're a hybrid or not, doesn't really matter. Sorry, coffee's kicking in now, man. I'm really fired up. I love it. That's a term, right, that's been really popular is this hybrid workforce. We, we've had some interesting brands talk about kind of how they're assessing it. Some brands were already set up for success pre-pandemic. Some brands kind of really had to figure out, okay, what do we do here? And I think it's interesting you know, to think about how are we supporting our people? And what does that really look like across these interesting industries? I think we're, we're pretty much failing a lot of them because I just think like so many of these people are like, are you at your desk from nine to five? Are you doing these things? Are you responding to email? Who the hell cares, man? That's not what it's about. You don't need that. Like as a manager and a leader, if you're not making those outcomes clear and then you're not creating the culture and you're not creating that strategy for them to go kind of figure out the best path to execution on their own, then you are setting them up for failure. Like that's almost irresponsible and criminal. Who cares where they are? A lot of people are in that same flavor. And then I'm still seeing some folks who are having a difficult time and the executive leadership level, come on, let's go. Like, let's, let's make the shift. Like the world is changing. People don't want to do it the way they've always done it. And it's interesting to see some of these larger fortune 100s kind of grapple with it in some ways. And I'm with you where it's like, we're already here. It is a big shift and it's, it's a hard adjustment because it's not just about, you know, digitizing what we already do, which is sort of what we've been doing for the last 20 years. It's about changing the way we think about what work is supposed to be. Like even that term productivity is offensive. It's not about productivity if you're a knowledge worker. You know, if yes, if you're in a factory, sure. But it's like, how productive are you, Jeremy? It's not about productivity. It's what results and what value are you delivering? That's what matters. I'm picking up on why your team probably will follow you anywhere now at this point. So that's very kind of you. Well, it's true. Look, I mean, for a guy like myself who has been a leader in an organization, but also followed leaders and still do, you know, with our CEO and co-founders, this is really important. And the way that you're kind of setting this foundation of, again, back to being safe and making it really cool and effective for people. But safety, it's really big. So I want to ask you about how you actually do cultivate gratitude, compassion, humility. There are some CMOs that I've connected with that really get this right. And there are some that want to get it right and some that definitely aren't even close. How do you cultivate this? I think it's so important, especially today. Yeah, well, I mean, way number one is uh, humility is I just go upstairs and my wife and kids remind me that I'm really not that special. So that <laughs> that's an easy one, you know. But no, I mean, I think, again, it comes back to that culture and just, remembering like I built an org chart once where I was at the bottom. It's not about me being the chief. Like I almost like would reject that name. Like it's not about chief. It's just like the marketing enabler. Like I'm just trying to support everyone and make everyone better. I mean, I've asked almost everybody on my team, like what's your long-term career goal? And I view it as my responsibility to help them get further. Like some of them want to be CMOs. And when you help other people and you adopt that sort of servant leadership, which trust me, like most days I feel like I fail miserably on that. I think it helps and you get people to tell you what your shortcomings are. And, and I like the fact that my team, even though I don't always like hearing the feedback, that's number one. And the second thing is actually, I said, I just sent a blog post to my team today that I put on my public blog, which happy to show later. 
it talked about some of the mistakes I've made as the CMO of GTM Hub. Like I put it out there, like, and we're going to put it probably on the GTM Hub blog. It's like, look, I'm not embarrassed. Like I know that I screwed up. Like I, I focused on OKRs on the right amount, but I neglected some of the necessary prerequisites to make OKR successful, which is why I created some confusion for my team. And I acknowledge it. I was like, here's where I screwed up, guys. I'm going to try to do better this next quarter. Well, that's super uncommon for a, you know, a marketing leader to kind of publicly share, hey, here's where I went wrong and here's some of my lessons learned. I know for me who studies marketing leaders, interviews marketing leaders, I don't know if I've ever heard that yet. I just don't see how I can create a culture where my team is willing to own up to their own shortcomings and failure if I don't at least, you know, quote, lead by example. And so, yes, I have to kind of tell the world, here's where I screwed up as the CMO. And if you want to pull the bullet on my head, be my guest. But this is what I'm going to try to do better next time. That's amazing. What's the name of your blog? Let's talk about it. So my blog is a legacy going back a long time. It's at blog.neverstopmarketing.com, which I like to say is not just a company, it's a mantra and a way of life. That's my old man talking. Okay, so it's neverstopmarketing.com. That's the name of it. Yeah, so that was a company I started about 13 years ago. It was a consulting firm and what have you, but I, it's my legacy sort of blog where I blog five days a week about pretty much whatever's on my mind. Where do you go for marketing inspiration? Where do you go to kind of make sure you're staying on the cutting edge versus the bleeding edge? Like, where do you end up hanging out? Books, blogs? Is there a little inner circle of marketing leaders that you go and speak with? Like, what's your process around that? I don't know if this is going to come off as arrogant or brilliant, but whatever, we'll take a swing at it. Like, I'm sort of at the point now where I feel like trying to always stay with the newest marketing thing is a mistake. And now it's more about trying to take my almost, what, 25 years, that sounds like a lot, marketing experience, but yeah, there I am, old gray man. <laughs> Let me just stroke the beard now to convey the incredible wisdom that I have. <laughs> yeah, you now you must listen to me. Mm. <laughs> it's more about trying to look at all this in these bigger time frames and say, okay, like, I don't have an iPhone. I'm an Android guy, for whatever, for worse. Actually, I do have an iPhone, but I don't really use it. But anyway, everyone went crazy over Clubhouse. And I saw a Clubhouse and I was like, okay, we could jump on Clubhouse and try to do something. And I was like, two things. Number one, I have no idea if Clubhouse is really here to stay because I've seen like Google Wave, Google Buzz, like change the world. Okay. Oh, wait, sorry, not going to change the world. So now maybe I'm not as like, I need to jump on every new thing the way I did when I was younger. That's probably because I'm just old and tired. So maybe there's that, number one. But number two is, is this the beginning of a trend or is this just a one-off thing? And so then I start looking for other things before I decide we're going to kind of go invest. Now, I'm always in favor of experimentation. So for example, I'm a big believer in the Brave browser. Shout out to my friends at Brave there which I think is a really interesting marketing channel, which we're experimenting on. But I actually think it highlights a trend, which Apple's making more common, which is you're going, as a chief marketing officer, you're going to have less and less personal information about your customers. So you need to figure out how to build that demand generation capability absent of what's become basically an addictive substance over the last 20 years. I like it. And I also want to circle back to something you were talking about earlier, alluding kind of to OKRs and how you focus so much on the OKR that there was kind of some missing elements of before that. And that just reminds me of my time at Google. When I joined Google, I don't know at what point when Google started drinking the OKR Kool-Aid, but when I joined Google, 
the first time I was there once, left and went back again. But the first time I was there, shout out to the Googlers. It was amazing. And I learned a lot. And I was on a lot of different teams. I got to experience a lot of different things. And sometimes I felt like this OKR thing was just this cool thing that we talk about and we need to put this number attached to this. But I felt like there was a lot of missing stuff. And it's like, what are your OKRs and KPIs? And it kind of became a little bit of a like, I mean, are we serious? I see the value, but I think there was some missing steps. Yeah, it was a challenge for me to navigate that thinking like there seems to be something that I'm not quite getting here. And I'd like you to maybe touch on that because you, yeah. I love what you just said. And Google's usually is held up as the poster boy, girl, non-binary person for OKRs because in the Bible of the OKR industry is what's called measure what matters. And John Doerr, D-O-E-R-R, if anyone wants to go after the book, he introduced OKRs to Google. And OKRs has this deep history going all the way back to Andy Grove at Intel, even sort of based foundationally on Peter Drucker stuff. So if you're a real student of that, you'll really appreciate. So OKRs to me, and, and this is like, yes, I have skin in the game and I'm talking my own book here. So feel free to discount it. But like by my calculation, OKRs will be embedded in every successful organization in some form or format by the end of this decade, or else those companies may not even be around. They are that game changing capability wise from a strategy execution perspective. Now, in order to execute strategy effectively, you actually need to deploy your strategy and in order to deploy your strategy, you actually need to develop your strategy. And if you haven't developed a coherent strategy and you haven't deployed it, then OKRs are just going to mess you up. And so I suspect what happened to you at Google, and I don't know, but I know what happened to me in the last quarter because my team went from three people to 20 in the span of like five months. I was so focused on the hiring, the recruiting and all that stuff that I hadn't evolved the strategy to its 2.0 version, which meant you know I didn't develop it properly. I certainly didn't deploy it well. And then I went into strategy execution, but a lot of people were confused about what the strategy was. So then I like three weeks into the quarter, I'm like, oh, I really screwed this one up here. So let me try to fix it. So yes, you have to develop a good strategy or a strategy it doesn't have to be that good. It has to be decent. Um, you have to deploy it and you have to execute it. And then the best part is if you're really smart and you use GTM Hub, of course, you'll be able to adapt your strategy as your strategy interacts with the market and adapt that in real time. And then you begin the process again and then go from there. So you're right. If you don't have those strategic elements in place, then a strategy execution methodology working at scale, I think you said that the most important word is committed. We like to say OKRs are simple, but not easy. If you want to become a marathoner, you can become a marathon. It's simple, but not easy. <laughs> so we like to say... If your mission doesn't matter on our taglines for missions that matter, if it doesn't matter to you, which is why I love your, your email address, like it's the best, you know, if the mission doesn't matter, like you're not motivated by that, then why are you even bothering trying to put in a world-class strategy execution system? Because like, you're, you don't care, you're not committed. So forget about it. Go call one of our competitors and sell with them and churn and then call us later. Tell our listeners and our audience, because you know, the folks that make primarily up our audience is going to be other CMOs and marketing leaders really kind of across the fortune 1000 and beyond. And, you know, some folks are going to be familiar with GTM hub. Some won't tell us not only kind of what, who GTM hub is. And if you give us a story of a brand that you worked with and some of the outcomes you've seen happen by collaborating with GTM hub. Well, the fact that they all don't know 
what GTM Hub is actually tells you that the CMO is not that good. So there is that kind of, you know, thanks for the feedback in a backhanded way that I suck. So thank you for that. Yeah. So we work with some of the world's largest brands like Adobe and CNN and Red Hat and Societe Generale and Experian. And we work with companies all the way down sort of the size range because we have an SMB offering. So if, if you're a 10 person company and you want to implement OKRs, which you can, if you're committed, we've got an offering for you, but we are really built to operate at scale. So basically we are best suited for uh, the companies that are organizations that have this results or outcome oriented mindset. Like they have that commitment. They want to do that. And they want to basically say, okay, how do we make sure that like those geese flying in the sky or the school of fish navigating the water that everyone's, or, you know, now I'm mixing metaphors left and right, rowing in the same direction. So basically as a chief marketing officer, you want to make sure that all the various disparate parts of your organization, as well as the rest of your organization, because you are the brand leader and they are depending on you to sort of form that tip of the spear are actually following suits. You have to set that tone. So if you have that type of culture and you're trying to deliver those types of results, then what OKRs do, which stand for objectives and key results, is they bring an entirely new level of accountability, alignment, collaboration, some degree of transparency, which makes some people uncomfortable and other people even more comfortable, and basically allow people to focus on, as John Doerr calls it, measuring what matters and focus on things that really move the needle. And as marketers, as you pointed out, we are short-lived and on the hot seat from day one because every single day, somebody is asking marketing for something, right? Multiple people. So as a marketer, at the end of the quarter, when you get on that board call, there's only one question. So uh, Jeremy, how much pipeline did you generate this quarter? I don't really care about your brand lift or all these, like, how much pipeline did he generate this far? Like, that's literally the only question. I like, it's like my presentation board is all these slides. It's like, I know it's going to be one question. Let me just answer a question. Then can we just skip the rest of it? You know? And so you're a CMO. You sort of have this grand vision. Like, oh, I know I need to focus on that. But having that OKR keeps you focused on it. And it's sort of like, I call it a business meditation. It brings you back to center. It helps your team focus on, it helps other people understand how what they're doing is pushing that forward so that you have that internal discipline as the CMO to say, Jeremy, I love you, man. There's nothing that would make me happier than being collateral for your special partner in South Central Vietnam. However, I'm not sure I can make it a priority right now because I have to stay focused on my pipeline. Or help me understand how this is going to drive the pipeline in the near future or how will it affect it? And then I can sort of fit it in and be affected. But OKRs and that mentality are about as much about saying no, if not more, or saying what we're not going to do as what we are going to do. And that, as if you go back to Drucker in the effective executive, he says the executive's job is every single day to figure out what is the one thing that you can do because your day is going to blow up on Slack and email as soon as you turn on your machine. What's the one thing you can do today to push that needle forward? And this gives you a way to focus on that and let everybody else know what your priorities are and understand how everybody's team's priorities are. So they might come to you but then you can say, look, these are my OKRs. This is what I'm focused on. And that forms the conversation. And what you will find, surprisingly, is that people will say, oh, since that's your priority, 
maybe here's another way to frame it, or maybe here's a way I can help you, or maybe you can actually help me. And all of a sudden, now you have this whole level of new collaboration possible. So that's just been really a game changer. I, I There are a slew of stories. I remember Societe Generale went from one team, for example, to 50 teams globally. TomTom's using it to basically figure out who are the key players in the organization here, because in a hybrid workforce that distributed, how do you know who's really delivering results? Well, now you have a way to figure that out. So a lot of really cool stuff that comes from. You know, you're the offering that helps brands figure out where they got to go and then get there. Do you wrestle with that of like, we got to be moving faster or do you feel confident in the knowledge that you have and the, the tools you use to say, wow, we're actually, this is predictable. We hit it or we beat it and we'll keep doing that. How do you look at that? You know, it's interesting. I, I think when we look at the enterprise, like enterprise customers want that predictability. And we all kind of like value that predictability because it provides that stability, especially in a world that it gets upended over the course of a weekend, as we all experience, right? So having that predictability. And I think it's one of those things. One of the things that does make the job tough is it takes a while to become proficient at the OKR methodology. Forget the software for a second. If you start lifting weights or you start running, it's going to take a while till you hit your group, no matter what. And so I tell people like what makes my job tough is it's not like downloading Instagram and then three seconds later, you get a dopamine hit and you're addicted. It's like, hi, if you install my software by working with one of our partners to help you drive cultural change and create the change management structure and set up the infrastructure in about a year, you're going to love life. And it's like, oh, you know, but it's like, that's why we say if you're not committed, don't even bother. I wish I could tell you it was super easy. And plenty of our competitors go around saying, it's going to be easy. And I'm like, you know what? I feel bad for you, man. Because like, if they're telling you it's easy, like they're lying to you and you're falling for it. And it's just not fair. And it's not honest because it's not easy. It's difficult. But it's one of those things that if you do it and you keep repeating at it, you will get better at it. And you know in real time whether in fact you are achieving that outcome that you wanted. And if you're not, you know you still have work to do. So it's very clear. And if you are, you're like, okay, I seem to have worked predictable engine. And so there's certain parts of our organization, like around some of our demand gen activities where I'm like, okay, this is generally working. Yay. Like, can we do it better? Sure. Boa. But then I look at sort of our part, like, for example, like our mid funnel kind of stuff. I'm like, hmm, generally not working as well as I would like to, <laughs> you know, now we put our focus there and then we can, and it tells us what to focus on. So this border, like our top of funnel stuff is not a huge priority for me. Are we doing it? Sure. Of course. But I know that because I see the data and it's all rolled up into one place and I check it every single day and I look at it, I know that the single biggest issue that the marketing organization faces is in that middle of the funnel. Is it horrific? No, but it needs to be a lot better for us to achieve those predictable results. And once we sort of, then we'll go on and figure out what the next big problem is and go from there. So that's kind of how, does that make sense? It does. It does. The modern day marketing leader sits at this intersection of like product and finance and operations and of course sales and there can be some interesting tension there. And I'm curious about, are there areas where you feel you're more comfortable playing in terms of those buckets? What is it like kind of now being at this trailhead, if you will, of all these different parts of the business? Because if you rewind the tape, I don't know if that was always the case. Now you have to have this understanding and relevance in all of these things and product and in fine. And there's a lot of people asking things. And how do you kind of sit at that trailhead now in today in 2021 and continue to add value? 
it's a challenge, especially because, you know, my partners in other parts of the business, you know, for them, it's front and center, do this now. And I might say like, I've been in sales in the past, so I generally understand how the function works. I understand enough about finance. You know, I run an investment fund. It's, it's sort of a hobby. So I, you know, I sold Excel solutions at Microsoft. So I would love, and I love pivot tables. So I understand how that works. I used to work in a partner organization at Microsoft. So I understand how that works. So the product organization, like I understand how critical that is because it's sprinkler. So I've been fortunate enough in my life to travel and live in multiple other countries and I speak multiple other languages. And frankly, like, I think it's just that same skill of like, can I speak the language of sales? Can I speak the language? So my German, for example, is not perfect. But if you're speaking to me in German and you're a native German speaker, after the first two or three sentences, you know that I'm beyond like the first five words that people learn in high school. And you trust me that this guy knows what he's talking about when it can, like, yes, he's not fluent, but he speaks it. So if I speak with a sales owner, I speak with a product leader, I speak with a partner leader, I can flip my language the same way that's the marketing skill. Like, it's not about GTM Hub. No one gives a shit about GTM Hub. They care about achieving their own outcomes. So I speak about, we try to, we don't always do it, but we try to speak about the language of the customer, language of the role, language of the function, language of the vertical, language of whatever, that mindset. So it's about flipping that multilingual script, which I, to me is unnecessary. But, you know, there are plenty of times where I fall short and I forget what the word is in German. I have to like, hey, how do you say that? And then they help me out. You talked about sales and marketing alignment. Sounds like you're one of the marketing leaders who actually understands that world and spent time there. Now here we are in 2021 where that alignment has to be ever-present and certainly a real thing, what's kind of your perspective on how other CMOs can really tighten this up? How have you been successful in aligning these two worlds since you understand them both? Because there can be big disconnects between both, as you know, and I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two things. One is all the people on my team, I tell them, I think these days you have to do a tour of duty as in a career stop in the sales capacity. Like you can be a world-class marketer without a sales experience, but it's a lot easier if you've done a sales role, I think, because then you understand where they're coming from. So I think it's about helping my partners in sales. Look, I understand they have a quarterly headache. You know, I may not have the same quarterly headache. I might think I'm trying to get this to be our the world-class brand. Like I want every CMO on this podcast to know about GTM Hub by the end of 2022, for example. I mean, by the end of this podcast would be great. By the end of 2022, we're mission critical. But my sales leaders are like, I need to have this done by the end of the month. You know, so showing empathy and, and recognizing that they're coming from that is, I think, the first step. And then trying to work with them and say, look, I understand you have this laundry list of things that you want to get done. But let's talk about which one of these is going to move the needle the most on your biggest deals that's going to be repeatable over time. And just try to balance, you know, that's where the alignment just happened that opened my, my chief revenue officer and I have this thing we call front stabbing. We're not going to stab you in the back. We're going to come right at you and be like, this is where you screwed me, man. <laughs> you know, but that's also something we took out of Sprinkler. It was just, we're going to front stab. And we, and again, we are really good friends and we, um, we knew each other prior to the role. In fact, I helped bring him in because I saw the opportunity and I thought he'd be able to add value. And he has added just ridiculous amounts of value. But like, there are times where we're just like pissed at each other for like two days. <laughs> you know, we're like, dude, that, you were such a dick to me. Like, why'd you see that? You know, hard in my French on that one, you know. Let's talk about the business intelligence that you like to see as a CMO. Do you, I've kind of heard different answers here and I'm curious. It, it, 
Is there a platform you're using? Like when you wake up in the morning, like what's the intelligence that you're looking at day to day, week to week, tools that you're using, things like that? Yeah, so this is going to sound incredibly self-serving, but we actually eat our own dog food. I mean, GTM Up is what I use. Like my team knows every Sunday, I'm going to sit down probably around one o'clock Eastern. Usually I could be multitasking and watching football. I don't ask much from a reporting perspective from my team. I ask for them three things. One, I want to make sure the OKRs are updated. The key results should have been updated. Number two, I want them to input their confidence level as to whether they will accomplish or how close they will accomplish. And number three is I want some meaty commentary about what they did in the previous week and links and tags if necessary to push forward against that key result. So all I do is I go through my entire organization and I just read everybody. And that in sort of over the course of like two hours, it doesn't take very long. And I can throw in comments and questions and what have you. Then I have this real-time situational awareness. I call us waves for business. Like I have this navigational sort of aid. I'm like, okay, I have a pretty good understanding. So I don't have status meetings. I don't have stupid reports that come to me. I mean, most nights I go to bed with inbox zero. Maybe that's just because I'm lazy. Yeah, but it's like, I don't spend and I have fewer meetings now. And the meetings that I do have, I know exactly what the problem is. And I put it in the agenda. I'm like, hey, I saw that you're struggling with this or I saw you're kicking butt here. What can we do more? What can we do better? How do, and who needs to be involved? And what's even better is it's not just for me that it helps. It forces each person on my team to have that moment where they come back because we all drift. Notifications on your phone and ESPN and whatever the Twitter thing of the day is and whatever. So this forces people to come back and say, okay, what am I focused on? What are my key results? How confident do I feel? What are the numbers against where I'm going? What have I done? Who do I need to inform? And then other people, you can go read anybody's OKR updates in the entire company. And now you can see what everybody else is doing. You don't waste time on like stupid filler nonsense that just sucks your will to live. That's what I hate about most organizations. It's so inefficient. Are there ways that you're collaborating with the team at GTM Hub that may be different than other spaces? Do you feel like there's some interesting things that you're doing to collaborate? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, our, our mission control is the GTM Hub platform. Like, so again, I know I'm just sounding like a broken record here. Not that anyone on this podcast knows what a broken record is, but, you know, <laughs> sorry. My, my kids the other day, like I had to explain something like tapes to them or audio cassettes. So, so it was just like VCR. I don't know. It's just like, or the fact that a TV show is not on exactly when you want it to be like, they, they couldn't understand that concept. I was like, you know, people used to go home for dates to be home for science, like that kind of thing back in the old days. But, you know, might as well be reading about covered wagons heading out West or whatever. But so I think we use that. And then we kind of go from there. And of course, like everybody else, I'm a maniac about documentation of processes on our confluence, which is part of that network. So I'm like, look, I, I call it the, what if you get hit by a bus document? I say to them like, Jeremy, you know, if you get hit by a bus, like, yes, I'll be sad and whatever, but the business needs to continue. So I want to know exactly. So someone else off the street could come in, read your document. Like, oh, I know how to do this person's role and I'm off and running. So I call it the get hit by the bus debacle. I said, document that. Don't waste time on needless calls. And also that comes back to the win on paper philosophy. It's like, give us there. And then we've built this knowledge repository for all the stuff we've tried in the past that worked, didn't work. And we built this infrastructure, that a knowledge infrastructure that I hope will allow us to scale into the organization that I think we one day could be. 
So there's a line in your background info that reads co-chief investment officer. Tell me more about kind of that adventure and how that plays into your passion for cryptocurrency and marketing. Yeah, so there's a lot there. I, I do run a fund called the Crypto Futura Fund, which is available to accredited investors. We did return 97% last year and we are up 114 this year. Wow, hey, nice. So I've been passionate about the crypto space for about five years now, like really been studying it like as a technology. It's, it's just amazing. But what I think was really helpful is it's forced me to understand markets and markets as they evolve because crypto really at its core is about facilitating marketplaces, right? So understanding how this market and this marketplace, which is initially centered around OKRs, but is going to evolve into this much larger category that I call results orchestration, like this results orchestration category that I, we are the leader in right now. And I think we have the best vision for, of course, I'm biased. I think Understanding how that market's evolving, like one of our competitors last week or two weeks ago was bought by Microsoft. And it was interesting because Microsoft is also an investor in yet another competitor of ours. So I'm trying to figure out why, if you invested in company A, are you buying company B? That didn't make a lot of sense to me, but I'm sure there's a good explanation in their internal press release war room that they came up with it. But I don't really know what it is. And frankly, I don't care. But I think the other thing is that what we're seeing with our clients right now. And what's happening in crypto is really the same thing, which is that organizations are becoming increasingly decentralized, right? The innovation is happening more and more at the edges, but you still need to align this entire organization, whether it's a decentralized autonomous organization, a DAO, or whether it's a, a modern agile organization around outcomes and create this culture that has accountability and transparency and collaborative values at its core, but you still need to know who's delivering results. So how do you do that? So to me, I have a front row seat and seeing both of those. And I think these two are sort of going to eventually meet in the middle. At least that's my work and thesis. I would argue that there's a strong sector of people who don't fully understand blockchain and its potential. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're so passionate about it and how should CMOs be utilizing blockchain? Well, I usually tell people like my glib remark is you don't need to worry about understanding blockchain because you don't understand how TCP IP works, but you also want, you know, the internet and SMTP are a big deal. So at the end of the day, who cares? But fundamentally, I believe what blockchains bring is the next wave in this, you know, 40 year information and communications technology revolution, as Carlotta Perez calls it, that basically takes to the concept of value and money, what internet did to information. Information travels at light speed, but try sending a wire internationally, man. It's an absolute pain in the ass and it costs a ton of money. What crypto networks do is they eliminate those middlemen in these or middle people in these markets and they allow for this transfer of value represented digitally without the worry that it's going to be counterfeit or forged, you know, and to allow for that to happen across time and space in a way that the internet did for information. So any market where there's an intermediary is in the crosshairs of the, the decentralized revolution. It's just, and finance is one of the biggest, most obvious ones, but all of these industries are going to get disrupted, in my opinion. Now, it might take 50 years, but I think that that's incredibly fascinating to watch that unfold and to watch it from like, like earliest infancy, essentially, as it's going through, like right now, it's like earliest childhood. You know, I have a whole book on 
blockchain and the CMO, which has four words from the uh, CMO of NASDAQ and Dun & Bradstreet, if I can do a little you know, social proof in their action. But basically what it talks about is six big areas that I think will be disrupted, how CMOs might want to think about this. So for example, like coming back to our discussion before around privacy and advertising, like in a web 3.0 world, like you know nothing about your customer aside from what their blockchain address is and what their wallet contents hold and their transactions. There is literally no such thing as PII. It is just non-existent. So that world already exists and you have to market to a world where that's all you know about the person. So to me, that's where we're going to end up anyway. And now thanks to Apple, we're starting to see what happens when you as a CMO don't have that. And now they take away a little bit and they think if you go all the way forward and work backward and say, ah, we might be in mile one of this marathon, but here's a natural conclusion. So I think it's really important to understand it's not so much how do I use the technology to do what I already do better, faster, cheaper. It's not about... Facebook advertising. Yes, that's nice. That's important. You should do it. More, how does the function and discipline and strategy around marketing evolve because of the arrival of this disruptive technology, whether it be internet, whether it be social, whether it be mobile, whether it be blockchain, right? And I think that's what's important to understand. So understanding all these markets, like advertising markets right now, where 60% of your money is fraudulent or whatever, and you have no idea, that's going to get ripped apart. And you'll have guarantees there's going to be trade-offs on that and you'll have personality and then there'll be expectations about customers owning their data. There'll be expectations that customers co-create and co-own the brand with you. Why don't they have a stake in it? When you have a Bitcoin, you own one twenty-one millionth of the network. So why not own a part of the brand and you could decentralize that and you can co-create assets and, and not just give them a $2,000 reward, but give them like provable token that represents 1% ownership in, you know, diet, Coke, vanilla, cream, cherry pie, whatever. General thoughts on NFTs. NFTs are super overhyped, but also here to stay. Mm, Okay. Jeremy Epstein, this has been truly an exceptional conversation, man. Thank you for being on the show. Little lightning round. Here we go. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com forward slash marketing. First question, CMO for GTM Hub, Jeremy, AKA Yuri. What do you do for fun? For fun? I guess I like to take really long walks in the forest. I'm an old man. I got three teenagers. What else? Are for? I, love to, I love to travel when I can. I like watching sports, but I like watching sports more with my kids now because it's fun to listen to them make the analysis. So I'd say those are, and I read, I read a ton. I do love reading. What was the best purchase under $100 you made in the past year? Actually, probably my shoes. I got them on sale, for like 55 bucks and they're super comfortable. So yeah. What kind of kicks are they? Under Armour, man. Under Armour for the win. Okay. Finish this sentence for me. I feel really alive when blank. My sort of wannabe Taoist philosopher answer would be when I'm just like sitting out in the forest and I appreciate the beautiful day and I take a deep breath and I feel alive. But I'd say like when I look back sort of towards the end of the day and I look back and I sort of mentally replay what the day was and I and we have a mantra among my family and my kids. We have four of them actually, but one of them is leave it all on the field. And I just ask myself, did I leave it all on the field today? And I can be like, yes, I did. And I'm like, all right, that makes me feel like today counted. 
finish this sentence. I would bless the whole world with blank. I would bless the whole world with an awareness of how our central bankers endanger our wealth and welfare by their borderline irresponsible behavior. Okay, last two questions. A time when you made a powerful choice was blank. I think when I opened up to my family about some of my mental health challenges that I've been facing, you know, I think like many people, especially through COVID, it's been challenging and we all deal with it our own way. It was scary to kind of really be upfront about some of the challenges I was facing and made me uncomfortable. I, but once I got over it, I was so pleased and blessed and, and grateful for the amount of support and pure love that I got back as a result. That felt good. It was not, I don't want to be like, I'm a superhero or anything, but that was, a, that was a tough one. Man, I really appreciate that answer. That's awesome. Last question, best advice for a first time CMO? Overinvest in the success of your team. Love it, awesome. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster, and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.